The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, a Bain Books debut, a warrior's heart, and a young girl who infiltrates the home world of humanity's greatest enemy. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It is a pleasure to have you along. I am your host and Bain Books Associate Editor, David Afsharirad. This week, we are very excited to introduce to you a new Bain author. Michael Merceau makes his Bain Books debut with his novel, The Deep Man, a military space opera in the mode of Gordon R. Dixon and Frank Herbert. But first, the news. It's February and the mass markets have hit bookstore shelves. Let's take a look. First up is Gunrunner by Larry Correa and John D. Brown. Once Jackson Rook was a war hero. Now he is a smuggler. His mission, steal a top of the line mech and deliver it to far flung planet Swindle. But for all Rook's mercenary ways, there is a sense of rough justice within him. It seems that deep within the smuggler, the heart of a warrior, still beats. And we also have Tiger Bright by T.C. McCarthy. San Kayar is a Noviet within a secretive holy order tasked by fleet to infiltrate the homeworld of mankind's most dangerous enemy, the Samen. If caught, her mission will bring war to Earth long before humanity is ready to confront this implacable enemy. That's Gunrunner by Larry Correa and John D. Brown and Tiger Bright by T.C. McCarthy, out now in mass market paperbacks. Do you prefer your books electronically? Do you like discounts? Well, head on over to Bain.com for our February Before Honor ebook sale. Honor Harrington may be the best military strategist in the Star Kingdom of Manticore, but she is also the heir to a noble legacy. This month, we're celebrating the tales in David Weber's landmark Honorverse that take place before Honor comes on the scene in On Basilisk Station. For the month of February, get $1 off previous entries in the Manticore Ascendant series, as well as the Young Adult Star Kingdom series featuring Honor's ancestor, Stephanie Harrington. The sale runs through February 28th, and these discounts are good wherever Bain ebooks are sold. And that's it for the news. Hi, and welcome to the book spotlight portion of the podcast. I'm your host, Josh Hayes. And here today, we're talking with the author of The Deep Man. It's his debut novel, Michael Marceau. Uh, welcome to the show, sir. Thanks, Josh. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. Uh, so I had the privilege of, of reading this book. I finished a couple of weeks ago, and um, I I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, it's it really gives me the sense of the uh, the uh, epic scope of uh, and kind of the 
the magical, eh, it's not really the right word, but uh, the feel of Dune uh, and kind of how wide sweeping empires kind of handle business with a little bit of mysticism and, and uh, um, uh, mystery kind of woven into the fabric of their society. And then also the um, first several Honor Harrington novels by David Weber. I think you managed to capture a really good mix of um, kind of military sci-fi, but also just regular like space opera and mesh them together very well. Um, so well done, sir. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so uh, again, I, I mentioned in the introduction, this is your de debut novel. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the inspiration for the story and uh, how you went about kind of fleshing that out as you wrote it? Sure, sure. Um, I uh, actually have enjoyed the uh, Honor Harrington novels myself in the past. Uh, I'm also a big fan of the uh, seafaring novels, uh, the Jack Aubrey seafaring novels by Patrick O'Brien. Uh, oh, yeah. master and commander and and the like and some right. of that was definitely uh um you know in, in the inspiration and, and the source for some of this material uh but i think mostly the inspiration for this was uh, my own sort of ponderings about the the future and you know possible uh shapes of society and and the different different structures that society can take and the idea of uh, sort of anachronistic or, or you know, um, counterculture families or, or groups within that, that futuristic society and, and how that interaction uh, would work and what that would look like. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, like I said, the, the, uh, the comparison to the the families of the the hierarchy in Dune was very um, uh, interesting in that it's it's not exactly the same, but it has that taste, same type of feel, and you got the same type of uh, uh, kind of infighting uh, politically, which I thought was another interesting aspect of the story, where the you can layer in that that really kind of high level political maneuvering between families, but also between uh, the military leaders of the Navy uh, and, the, the, and their interactions between each other, but also kind of the low level nuts and bolts of, of just the, the boots on the ground. Um, a lot of stories here in recent history have kind of focused on one or the other uh, in my experience. Um, and uh, I'm interested to, to know what it was like for you uh, with the different levels of characters and, and which, which did you prefer, which did you have the most comfort writing or, or uh, that's not really the right way to word the, the question, but uh, you know, I, I'm, I was a grunt in the military. I, I was low level. I was never an officer. My dad was, but uh, I do a lot of research on when I'm writing like officer discussions and, and different things like that. Um, and so I'm wondering with the, the multiple levels of characters that you have in here, which, which ones were your favorite to write and, and which ones did you, did you pull any inspiration from like real life experiences with people? 
Um, well, I've never served in the military, but I have, uh, you know, worked uh, adjacent um, to uh, to service members, and that's been a source for uh, a certain amount of that. Some of the uh, mannerisms and esprit de corps and, and all of that. Uh, right. Some of the structural hierarchical stuff is definitely being pulled from the the seafaring novels. Uh, there is a lot of um, you know, that, that the sort of effect of, of, you know, long-term, uh, very personal interaction between people that are also part of a, uh, you know, ranked hierarchy, uh, creates a lot of interesting dynamics. And I felt that, uh, Patrick O'Brien communicated that, uh, beautifully in, in those novels. And so, uh, I think that that was, a a good source for a lot of that. Um, my, uh, a lot of my initial writing where I really got started was more in fantasy. And I think that that kind of gives a lot of the sort of grand scope um, and the world building, but bringing that down and, and making that something that we can look at, you know, as, as a potential future for humanity, you know, more of a, a, a realistic, what if, you know, it's got that extra um, possibility attached to it, I guess has uh, helped helped ground it and uh, make make the characters more real. Um, that said, it's uh, I think it's it's hard hard to choose. I uh, have uh, greatly enjoyed um, uh, writing uh, the character Inga. Um, her role in the story has been central, and um, I think she's uh, adds adds uh, much needed. Uh, fun and energy, I think, without her as a as a kind of wild card or a driving force, I think it would have been a much uh, flatter sort of story. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I've, I've enjoyed writing things, uh, her perspective and some of her background. Um, in fact, I think there is a, uh, I don't know if this is inside baseball or not, but uh, the uh, there's an origin story of sorts, a uh, short story that I think should be coming around before too much longer um, on the Bain website that's related to uh, to Inga. So that's something Very to look cool. out for. Uh, you know, it, the I mean, the, the cast of characters is wide in this book and and uh, it, it, at, I don't I don't want to say overwhelming could be the right word, but definitely um uh, well populated and um you know sometimes on on books you read that there's so many characters you you don't really get a feel for um who they are and the majority are just kind of you know cardboard cutout characters that that just kind of do their bit and leave and I, and I thought that you did a really good job of uh fleshing out even even characters that you we just meet briefly um fleshing those characters out and, and, and giving them more life than just the, the task that they were performing in the book. Um, one of the, one of my favorite scenes is the, there's a, there's a scene very early on in the book where uh, a character is getting assigned a, a ship and uh, there's a lot of back and forth between a lot of the uh, participants in that meeting. And I, and I thought that the, you know, a lot of times you can kind of see uh, in writing where the the author is 
pushing the conversation in a certain direction. And uh, as a reader, you can kind of see, okay, I, I know where this conversation is going to go. And, and, and so you just kind of start browsing through the dialogue almost so you can get to the end because it's kind of uh, redundant to read kind of the back and forth because you already see the, the, the painting on the walls there. And uh, in this particular, well, in a lot of the scenes, but in this particular conversation, uh, I had absolutely no idea. And it, it, like I would make my decision going, okay, yes, this is going to happen. And then something would happen in the dialogue or in the conversation. It would completely change what I thought the outcome was, was going to be. And I thought that was really kind of a testament to, you know, really well uh, rounded characters and uh, a, a testament to your skill as a writer to be able to frame a conversation and, and send it in uh, kind of a direction that the reader isn't going to just pick up on right out of the, the gate. So uh, uh, I, I thought that that was, was really well done. And, and um, that I thought that the interaction between most of the characters was very organic as well. Um, I didn't, I don't know that I ever thought that somebody was doing something strictly because the, the story demanded it of them. Right. Uh, do you have a, a favorite scene in the book or, or something that, that comes to mind that, that you had uh, more fun writing than any other scene or. Well, I, I have to, uh, I have to say everything involving uh, uh, safe's friend Claude has been um, almost entirely self-indulgence. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. I think if there was a, uh, you know, a, a fourth wall to be broken, that would be that he would be the one on the edge of that. And uh, yeah, he's just uh, it's been a lot of fun to write. That's awesome. Uh, if there's anything, you know, I don't know if you uh, have much experience writing with a smile on your face as you're writing dialogue, but that's definitely been uh, been Claude for me. There are certain characters where you write and, and you're like, I couldn't make any other character legitimately do or say what I'm, I'm making this character do, but it's hilarious. And uh, this character definitely allows me to, to do those things that maybe the, the normal characters wouldn't because safe is kind of, you know, he, he's got also, he's got multiple things going on in his story, but he's, um, he's really focused and, and Susan Roush, which I, I really enjoyed her character. Um, uh, because what she experiences in the the beginning of the book legitimately frames her actions and her responses at the end of the book. And, you know, when you talk about Chekhov's gun, where you, you introduce something, a lot of a lot of times those are actual items. And this this particular Chekhov's gun was not an item. It was it was just an experience. And I thought that was uh really well done how you um set that really at the beginning and allowed that to frame something else um was that something that happened organically or uh like i'm a plotter when i write and and so a lot of times i'll get to the end of the book and i'll realize or the end of the outline and realize i need to set something up but uh how much of the story i guess in general did you have um when you started writing or uh and did you were able to set some of these things up before or after you finished well, the, uh, I definitely try to keep things, uh, relatively loose when writing, um, you know, kind of have an idea as to the, the broad strokes, but 
part of the process, I think, at least for me, is setting up these characters and then pitting them against something. Um, and I don't know if you've uh, uh, played, you know, Dungeons and Dragons or a similar like tabletop role-playing game, but that sure. feeling of having a cast of characters and then putting them into a situation and just seeing what they do. And, you know, you know, when you have a, uh, a, a lot of free will involved, uh, you, you have no idea which way it's going to go. Right. Um, yeah. So there was, you know, there were certain things I needed to, to come out at the end, but certainly uh, when they got to, you know, into the Delta three system there, um, I was not certain, um, I guess, who, who was going to be making it home. Right. Uh, you know, the, the, um, I, I think maybe that was the, um, the interesting thing about the story when, when he gets, when safe gets his command and then he, well, first of all, his command, uh, Loki is a phenomenal character. Um, and, I have come across several instances of really kind of well done AI. Um, but can you, can you take a, a little bit of the, uh, the onion apart when it comes to creating Loki as a character, because he's a very interesting non-human character. And sometimes uh, we can get lost in, you know, he, he comes across as very artificial, definitely not human, um, but he's, he's definitely got those, those, qualities that make him interesting and and you want to care for him so how what was the development like around his character uh well i think uh from i mean from the standpoint of of inspiration um i'm blanking on the name currently but uh in a, uh xenocide and uh the Orson Scott card. Um, oh, uh, Ender's Game. Um, yeah. What is yeah. the? You're talking about the 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 AI. Yeah, the AI he he picks up and is he has in his ear. Um, don't know why I'm blanking on that name right now. Jane. Jane. Yeah. Um, definitely some of the, I guess the, uh, inspiration for that sort of character was was pulled from Jane. Um, but within the context of this universe, again, more in, in parallel with Dune, you've had the thinking machine accords that, that came down and put a lot of limits in terms of how uh, AIs can operate. And uh, rather than having, you know, I guess, a rapid advancing AIs like we see, you know, special, uh, specialty focused AIs, it can become very good at specific skills. The more general AIs, uh, in, at least in this universe, take a while to to develop their usefulness and their character. Um, and so having something like that that's meant to develop usefulness over a, a long, potentially long span of time, a long you know, period of service, being uh, left alone for uh, potentially long periods of time or dealing with uh, interactions that are you know, far, far below its ability, you know, its processing ability. It's just, it's like a, you know, that kid in school who is 
bored with their current grade level and wants to, you know, and then they're sitting there and they're just going crazy. They just want to do something else. Right. And, um, I think some of that, that, you know, manic grade schooler comes through in the character. Uh, but I love that description of Loki because it's, it's spot on. And then, you know, yeah, having, uh, being immensely powerful in certain ways and, and, utterly powerless in others i think create always creates an interesting uh an interesting framework for for a character to to grow well and it and and i think um you know have like what you just said having the limitations but also being extremely uh advanced um you know it, it doesn't take the human portion of decision making or uh, error making or, or whatever it doesn't take that out of the equation so it you know it's not like you have an easy button where you're uh, we can't figure it out so let's let the ai do it uh, because it's not designed to work like that and, and i thought that that was a really well uh, i thought that was interesting in and of itself because I, I i think sometimes you look at ais and and just because it's an ai it's it becomes kind of this uh all-knowing kind of uh you know wikipedia of we can just ask the ai and it can solve the problem for us i think that's one of the one of the pitfalls of like hard sci-fi is is often going to be the uh just a, what a problem ai is in terms of plot uh because if it you know i, I feel like they rapidly become all-knowing and all-powerful and suddenly there's no there's no room for uh for, for human error or, or communication. Um, it's like, uh, how, you know, after the invention of the cell phone, we still had all, you know, it took a little while for all the, the movie plots to finally figure out that you can't just have people not knowing something or not being able to reach someone else as a plot point anymore. Yeah. It kind of gutted that whole, that whole option. Right. Uh, I think AI does a does a similar thing to the sci-fi genre, and I think that was part of what makes Dune so interesting as a world is that when you remove AI from the equation, um, and you you really limit um, that aspect of humanity's uh, growth or power. That tool you remove that from the toolbox, uh, what they have to you know make up for it with becomes much more interesting. Uh, I agree, and and I and I think that the the way that you've presented it um in the deep man and and also kind of the the um not not quite magical but kind of mystical uh you know reaching into to find the deep man and doing that kind of thing you have you know uh the the good mix of of not flawed technology but not all knowing and not all fixing technology with uh, abilities that you can learn and um, develop and it creates multiple levels of of conflict but also growth potential for the characters uh, all the characters across the board which i thought was really interesting yeah i think the uh definitely having a non-homogenous society having the the different houses with different you know differing levels of uh, different specialties or skill sets and development creates a, a much more uh, colorful environment for a story to take place. Uh, 
that's uh, perhaps something in the current day and age when you know so little information seems to be uh, specialized, right? You can you can find tutorials for anything on YouTube. You know, you can you can pick up any any skill to at least a, a moderate ability within you know a couple of days. It seems like, but yeah. that also removes a lot of the value. I think from it makes the characters less exceptional if anyone can can do the same thing, right? So, yeah, no, I agree. Um, so the, uh, the, the book is obviously the first in, in a series. And, and I thought that you did really well setting up, uh, not only this story, but then follow on stories and that, that you, you made the world big enough where, I mean, you can take it anywhere you want, but also kept the, the story, the central story of the novel relatively self-contained at the same time, which I think a lot of times is really hard to do. Um, especially with a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, authors today are doing, you know, big series like 15 book series and, and they're allowing, you know, multiple things to carry over multiple books. This, this was really a self-contained story in a universe that's obviously going to grow and do different things. Um, obviously you have bigger plans for, you know, what's going on kind of behind the scenes um, and, and the different layers of this story, but do you have a, is there something that you built on for this particular story for the, the, you know, the, the the delta three plot and and all of that stuff did you pull that uh from a a significant uh, from a uh into one incident is what i'm trying to say or did that grow over multiple incidents uh incidents uh, and did you just put it together um just for this story or did you have a a, a, a grander scheme when you started putting it all together I think that the formation of of the larger universe and the uh, you know the framework. I guess I don't I don't want to give uh, too much in terms of spoilers for sure. any uh, listeners that haven't haven't read it. But right. the uh, you know uh, first contact did what was uh, pretty horrific for humanity. Second contact was a uh, much more uh, beneficial, and uh, the details of third contact have been pretty organic as I've gone through this. Um, I wanted, you know, more, more players on the board. I wanted that, that conflict there, but the exact nature of that conflict has been, um, uh, is, is still taking shape. Uh, so I, I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. It, it is. A <laughs> yeah. Well, because I, like, like you say, you have, uh, um, multiple aliens that are there even though some of the aliens are are um are more mysterious and and we don't know their their full intent and i um you know and i i think that that exploring not only the the continued growth of safe and the and ingrid and the rest of the characters but also the the uh, peeling back the veil as it were on these other alien races and kind of what they're really 
intentions are for for humanity and their contact there i think is going to be really neat to explore as the series kind of grows and continues uh are you working on the the second book now or when what uh what's in store for you here in the in this next couple of years or this year uh yeah i have i have been doing doing work on a, a sequel um i guess looking at at the arc here i real really feel like it's three uh possibly four books to sort of tell this story yeah uh and the uh yeah the, the sequel is coming along quite well um i'm happy happy with the progress there and i'm excited to uh excited to to share that with uh, everyone when it's ready to go as well sick uh, well, uh, Michael, thank you for, for coming on the, the show today. I really enjoyed talking with you. I really enjoyed the, uh, the deep man it's out, uh, now, um, on Amazon and, and bookstores. And, and I don't know that the audio is out yet. I don't see that option available, but I, oh, I think everything else is out and ready. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still, still waiting on the audio book. Um, Awesome. Uh, well, again, uh, thank you, sir. And, um, uh, good luck from the, on the sequel and the, the continued success of the, the deep man. Hey Josh, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. That was Josh Hayes talking with Michael Merceau about the deep man out now in trade paperback and ebook formats. And now another installment in our ongoing audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die. Eight. My dad is going to already be there. Starin Vernon had fortunately gotten her looks from her mother and her stature, since she was pushing six feet. The name meant star in Cornish, and it fit her eyes, which were dark but with a usually bright sparkle, even more so when she was mad. He'll probably be talking on his plant and probably shouting at somebody, which means he looks like he's raving. You told me. Thomas Schneider was taller than Starin, but had the same general looks, dark hair and eyes. They looked a good bit like brother and sister rather than an engaged couple. Several times. Vernon party, he said to the maitre d'. And you are? Starin Vernon, Starin snapped, the heir apparent. Yes, miss, the maitre d' said, nodding. Right this way. I'm sorry for asking, but we do try to keep people from bothering our more prominent guests. It was a very nice restaurant, one of the best in Pittsburgh, and that was saying something. Pittsburgh, as one of the larger surviving cities in the U.S., had become a major financial and industrial hub. It always had been just overshadowed by bigger names like Detroit, New York, and Philadelphia. With all three of those gone, the money and industry had moved to places like Pittsburgh, St. Louis, and Indianapolis. They had major traffic problems, though. People were willing to work in and around cities. Nobody wanted to live near them, much less raise the increasing number of children. 
Western society was still coming to terms with the first baby boom since the post-World War II generation. The Horvath changes took time and technology to eradicate. The full-course treatment was six four-hour visits to a clinic that had the equipment. There were still less than 2,000 of the clinics in the U.S. and Europe. They were cycling through about 10,000 cases per year. Over 90 million children, mostly in the U.S. and Europe, had been born from mothers with Johansson syndrome in the two years since the attack. The approximately 45 million daughters all inherited it. Absent a huge increase in the supply of advanced medical equipment and technicians trained to operate it and doctors qualified to deal with the occasional problem, there was no way to catch up. Worse still, girls who were prepubescent when they were infected were still at risk. As soon as they hit puberty, they went into heat. Coupled with the prevention of regular contraception, it was a nightmare. Society was just starting to come to grips with a teen pregnancy problem that was simply astronomical. The effect had been studied, and to the sometimes amusement of males, it turned out that the heat effect was functionally identical to male arousal, just more varied. For about seven days during the four-week cycle, essentially during their menstruation period, women had about normal arousal. During the remaining three weeks, they were, in the oft-quoted words of some medical pundit, 17-year-old males with choice. And there were secondary effects. Since people tended to follow trends, even women who were not affected by Johansson's were having babies in large numbers. Prior to the attack, native Germans had a birth rate of 1.5. Since replacement was 2.1, they were slowly going extinct. Last year, there had been one child born for every single female with Johansson's in Germany, which was a good bit of the population. That right there was 17 million of the 90, and the trend was projected to continue until there was a fix. The situation was much on Tom's mind as they entered the restaurant, and he saw his prospective father-in-law for the first time. Starin had stated in no uncertain terms that she wasn't going to be the only girl she knew without children. She wasn't sure about the dozens some of them seemed headed for. A friend of hers had the genes for multiple birth and already had six. But they were going to get started more or less on their honeymoon. He'd said okay and tried not to wince. Tyler Vernon was, as anticipated, apparently talking to the air. Did Gorku give his okay? Okay, then. Well, I don't care if the authorizations have to be hand-carried. I don't care if you have to hand-carry them. Get them to Granatica now. Because we're going to have the plates by the end of the month, and I want the spinning to start the day they arrive. That's why. Yes, the end of the month. Because we are very good. I've got to go. I'm serious, Ujo. They better be there in no more than three days or I'm going to cite failure of contract. Because I can be. Bye-bye. Tyler snarled and then looked up and smiled. Pardon me while I try not to scream. Hi, Dad, Starin said, giving him a peck on the cheek. Hi, honey, Tyler said. You must be Thomas. 
he continued, holding out his hand. Thomas or Tom? Uh, Tom, sir, Tom said, shaking Mr. Vernon's hand. He'd been told he was short, but it was a bit of a shock. A guy who had done all he'd done, changed the world, should be taller. He'd heard the snickered references to Napoleon. SNL and other comedy shows had used it as a stock joke for years, but he was still surprised. Call me Tyler, Mr. Vernon said. Since we're going to be kin, <laughs> sit, stay a while. Vernon paused and seemed almost to fall asleep for a moment. Communing with your plant, Dad? Starin asked. No, just trying to adjust to family time, Tyler said, looking up and smiling. I've gotten so little of it, I'm sort of out of practice. I've been available, Starin pointed out. Christy's busy, I'll admit. I haven't, Tyler said, shrugging. I quit apologizing a long time ago. You've been busy, Starin said, shrugging. And, in case I haven't said it, Troy? Oh, Tyler said, did that finally break? That you're making a humongo habitat? Starin said caustically. Uh, yeah, months ago. And I've been getting jokes from my friends since it didn't come out as large as it was supposed to. I guess your dad came up a little short. Oh, Tyler said, then smiled. Ah, yes, Troy. Yes, it did come out a bit smaller than we'd planned. Still plenty big, though, don't you think? It's a very interesting project, Tom said. We did a study of it in my orbital engineering class, but it was apparent that you'd started with too few volatiles. A bit, yeah, Tyler said. But do you have any idea how hard it is to drill into nickel iron? 1.274 megajoules per cubic meter of melting energy, Tom said. And then you have to consider dissipation. The thermodynamics are fascinating. You two are not going to talk shop, Starin said. Just a bit more, honey, Tyler said. Orbital engineering? I wasn't even aware that was a class. It's hard to get, Tom said. There aren't that many qualified professors. Master's level only at this point. Penn State has a class, though. Dr. Myers. He worked for you, well, for Apollo, for about five years on the Connie Project. Huh, Tyler said. I'm glad the data's getting out there. We're dying for qualified people between Troy and what we're going to be doing with her and the wolf projects. We can use every damned engineer we can get our hands on. Was that a job offer? Starin asked. Can I ask what is causing the somewhat sarcastic mode? Tyler said. I'm sorry, Starin said. I just... We never get to see you and you're talking shop. Unfortunately, shop is about all there is to my life, honey, Tyler said, shrugging. Has been since, well, since you were ten. I'd much rather talk about orbital engineering than war, which has been my other preoccupation. So, since we're not going to talk about either, what's the plan for the wedding? Are we talking wedding of the century or a private little ceremony at the house? If we do wedding of the century, it will be covered up with paparazzi, Starin said. I still have to occasionally chase them away from the clinic. <laughs> Tyler said.
Tyler said, grinning. Depends on where we have it. Space? Tom said, grinning. All traffic is carefully controlled by Space Command, Tyler said. And I know people. We are not having it on some orbital project, Starin said, then paused. What are you thinking exactly? Hmm, Tyler said. I've been thinking about building a ship for my own uses. I suppose I could get one fabbed up pretty quick. Nice one. Big enough for a fair-sized wedding party. Large viewing deck of optical sapphire. We're casting those big these days. I'm not sure about getting an inertial system that permits it to be the dance floor. Ooh, Starin said, shuddering. I don't think I want to do my wedding dance over the moon or earth. Just a thought, Tyler said. I could probably still get a custom yacht built to any spec you'd want from the Glaucod yards. Probably a better choice. Nah, come to think of it, they're backed up too. I've been thinking I really need my own ship. This would be a good opportunity. I'd give it to you as a wedding present, but I don't think you'd want it. No, thanks, Starin said. I was sort of uncomfortable the one trip I took out with you when I was 16. I'll keep my feet on the ground. Could rent an island, Tyler said. Fire friends in? Again, I know people. If we did it in certain areas, the government would be happy to keep out paparazzi. Stay there for your honeymoon if you want. Please, let me chip in for the honeymoon. Done, Starin said. We accept. I'll tell you what the plan is when we decide. But if you want to spring for an island wedding, I'm all for it. Sorry, Tom. No problem, Tom said, smiling. Whatever you want, honey. Any idea where? Tyler asked. Greece? Caribbean? Polynesia? Let me look around, Starin said. I've tried very hard not to play poor little rich girl, so I don't really know, since I don't run in those circles. Just let me know, Tyler said. Have you been by to see Christy? Starin asked. What? You two don't talk? Tyler said. She's covered up in work. I'll probably see more of her when she graduates. I'm going to throw her at LFD at first. She's not into orbital either. No, Starin said. We're not. So what are you going to do with Troy? Inflate it again? Mine it? That is proprietary, Tyler said. Sorry, but it's a big project. There's a lot riding on it. The basic properties are pretty straightforward, Tom said, his brow furrowing. The team came to the conclusion that there was no way you were going for a big habitat. Nine kilometers is pretty darn big, Tom, Tyler said. And let me note, Starin, that you were the one talking shop. I know, Starin said, grinning. I just could see you getting uncomfortable talking about the wedding. Decide what you want to do, and I'll just write the checks, Tyler said, smiling. I'm really looking forward to it, seriously. But about Troy, I really can't talk about it for another two months, about. When it's cooled, Tom said. When it's cooled, Tyler said. 
Then we really get to work. Sorry it took so long, Tyler said. It was a two-kilometer-in-diameter steel washer with divots already cut out for the support lines. Six tugs were maneuvering it carefully from the gate to Bespin, which was going to take about a week. Because there wasn't an intelligent species in the system, the Gertul had just set up the gate to orbit naturally. Thus, it was rarely near Bespin. Travel times were going to be a pain. No problem, Byron said, chewing on the end of his pipe. We've got the spinners and carbon ready to go, and Granatica has been turning out parts like nobody's business. We also set up a portable separator system in the meantime. We're not at independence from Glatun fuel supplies, but we're at about 60% in the system. Doesn't quite cut down on cost because the portable is pretty expensive, but it's something. We're going to need to talk about tankers, Tyler said. Fuel in this system is great. We need it in Seoul, a lot of it. Well, Byron said, pulling out his pipe and contemplating it. The Glatun method for producing tankers is uh, to put them together, not too much unlike a regular ship. I've worked on them. I think we can do that pretty well with Granatica's help and looking at it. Which takes, like, forever, Tyler said. Yep, Byron said. Or we could use the Liberty ship design. But we'd only be pushing 90,000 tons of fuel in each ship. That's a lot of fuel, but not what you're talking about. No, Tyler said. Or, this is just a thought, Byron said, staring through the crystal wall at the giant washer that was about to become the upper portion of a giant space elevator, and which had been constructed in about three weeks. We could do what you did with Troy blow up a nickel-iron asteroid, thinner and smaller, mind. Just a big, grape-looking thing. Slap on one of the engines and crew quarters from the Liberty ships. Depends on the size of the asteroid and the amount of fuel, but you could get some boost there. Be slow, but steady. That is more like it, Tyler said. How soon can you get started? We're about done drilling. I figured you'd like it. And I know how you hate to wait. This had better work, Tyler said. We're going to be learning by doing, Nathan said. Get used to it. Yeah, but if we really mess up, we just can't fix it with duct tape, Tyler pointed out. The first thing that had to be done was get Troy moving. And once they did that, it was going to be apparent where it was going. That Troy was a DOD project was bound to hit the news sooner or later. The line item had finally made it into the budget. Questions were already getting asked on the white side of Congress, the part that had to vote on a multi-billion dollar military line item, but hadn't yet been briefed in. The fact that it had taken this long was surprising. Moving it was the next problem. They'd stabilized the asteroid with pumped fusion bombs. But even though they were very clean in yield, they'd been counted out for this evolution. Let an enemy irradiate the surface of the battle station. Instead, a poor, lonely, nickel-iron asteroid that was so minuscule it didn't even have a name had been chosen as the accelerant. 
After stabilizing the 600-meter diameter asteroid's rotation, it had been fitted with the largest pumped fusion bomb ever created by man, adjusted to point to the target, and then the bomb had been set off. The man-made super-missile was about to hit the Troy at 90 kilometers per second and, with luck, send it on a course for its eventual home, just outside the 300-mile no-heavy-weapons interdiction circle of the gate and up in the plane of ecliptic. No, Nathan said, but the worst that's going to happen is Troy will be out of pocket. Then we'll just have to drop back to plan B. Nuclear attitude adjustment, Tyler said. I'd prefer to avoid NAA. Same here, Nathan said. But we have bigger problems. We've done the rotational equations, and we're probably going to have to use some nukes. With every tug in the fleet pulling, which means shutting down every other project, it will only take 17 years to get the rotation out. And until we get the rotation stabilized, we can't really do anything with it. We especially can't poke a hole in it. The Atmo inside has to be under pretty severe pressure. When we pop it, it's going to apply delta V. And if it's spinning, the delta V is going to be a bit like a balloon that you open up the spout, Nathan said. Especially since when we burn through is going to be a guess. I know a guy who says all these equations are easy, Tyler said. He's either an idiot or a student, Nathan said, watching the numbers from the asteroid's trajectory. This is looking too good. Student, Tyler said. Starin's fiance. Seems like a good kid. I'd frankly dreaded who Starin was going to pick for a husband. Love her to death, but dreaded. As it turns out, another dread I can put aside. Who's staring? Nathan asked. My daughter? Tyler said. I mean, really, we've been friends for how many years? I knew you had kids, Nathan said. You never seemed to want to talk about them. Congratulations on getting one of them married off. I'm thinking about making him your assistant, Tyler said. <sighs> Oh, that's just what I need, Nathan said, laughing. A hot-shot grad student. Well, when he's got his master's. A hot-shot with a master's that also happens to be the boss's son-in-law, Nathan said. Toss me out an airlock without a suit, why don't you? As I said, he's a pretty good kid, Tyler said. And stabilization is going to be dead easy. Oh, Nathan said. Really? Really, Tyler said. Melt a couple of big patches, big patches. Then get some tugs and pull out the metal as far as you can. Try to keep it straight. Horns, Nathan said. I thought this was the Troy, not the Viking Raiders. Archimedes, Nathan, Tyler said, sighing. Levers the small planetary object physicist said, slapping his forehead. Damn it. Why do I have to think of these things? Do you know how hard it's going to be to do? Nathan asked. No, Tyler said. Easier than anything else that comes to mind, though. Yes, Nathan said. 
easier than all our other thoughts. And the reason you have to think of things like this is that we worker bees are trying to figure out how to get your visions to actually work. But, damn, levers. <laughs> Give me a lever big enough and I shall move the world, Tyler said. Times like this, I wish I had a time machine. Hey, Archie, come on into the future. We made a lever big enough. And we have contact. Nathan said. On the screen, the 600-meter asteroid impacted the side of the massive metal ball. Following the laws of physics, it then recoiled and bounced off. It was like moving a beach ball by hitting it with a fastball. The difference being that in this case, the beach ball was a thousand times more massive than the baseball. The fastball bounced off with a spall of metal pinwheeling through space. Troy didn't seem to move at all. How's our trajectory? Nathan asked. Pretty good, the technician said. About 98% of nominal. We're going to have to adjust carefully on arrival. Do we know where the poor asteroid is going? Tyler asked. Towards Jupiter orbit, the tech said. It's probably going to contact Ceres. We'd already planned to stabilize it. More nukes, Tyler said, sighing. Those things are expensive, you know. And more at the other end, Nathan said. Good news is that it also decreased the spin slightly. Hmm. If we do the adjustments with a bit of English, space billiards... Apollo Mining and Tyler Vernon are up to it again, grabbing headlines across the world with a bank shot in asteroid engineering. Here with us is Fox space analyst Dr. James Eager. Okay, Dr. Eager, they hit Troy with a nickel-iron cue ball, and now it's drifting into the space lanes. What's up with that? Well, Nick, it's clear that all of our initial estimates of Troy's purposes were wrong. I'm not sure how big they were actually planning on Troy being, but it wasn't supposed to swell up to full size, and it wasn't ever supposed to stay in the asteroid belt. Given the course they set it on, there's only one target. Target? Is it a weapon? I'm not sure if you'd call it a weapon per se, but the name now makes sense. Troy is headed for a near collision with the gate. It's pretty unlikely they mean to hit it. They'll have to adjust its course at some point. But they're probably planning on parking it by the gate, and that has only one meaning. And the meaning is, don't keep us in suspense, Doctor. It's a battle station, Nick. A massive fortress to protect the solar system from hostile ships coming through the gate. And with a kilometer and a half thick walls in the sapple, that's gonna be one heck of a deterrent. Levers, Tyler said. Huh. He'd gone ahead and gotten the ship, even if Starin didn't want to get married in it. Smaller than if it was designed for parties, it was based on the emergency rescue shuttles. He'd thought about getting a converted frigate, but that just seemed too much overkill. The differences between a stock ERS and the Starfire being many. 
ERS didn't have one wall replaced with optical sapphire, and they weren't nearly as comfortable. He leaned back in the couch and watched with his naked eye as just about every tug in the system lined up on the two horns that had been extruded from the Troy. The melt area had left two large dimples at the base that were going to take some consideration. He didn't want two great big bullseyes on the battle station. But getting the rotation out was the main problem at present. It wasn't like there wasn't lots of nickel iron in the system. They could melt the levers back into the mass easily enough. Take a while to cool, though. Lining up on the levers was the tough part. The exterior of Troy was rotating at 63 meters per second. The levers, though, were five kilometers long, the longest Nathan thought they could make without seriously damaging the structure of the battle station. That meant they were moving at 97 meters per second. That was only 200 and some odd miles per hour, a crawl at astronomical speeds. But it was rotating. It was like trying to catch the tire lugs on a snow tire. The tugs could barely keep up. The only reason they could was that there weren't any puny humans on board. They were pulling nearly 40 Gs as they maneuvered into position. Tugs in place, Argus said. Tyler had taken one of the AIs he'd gotten from Gorku and installed it as the overall manager of the SAPL and other Apollo operations in the solar system. The Class II AI was necessary, with the now thousands of clusters set up all over the inner system. He also managed civilian space traffic, at the moment, though, all such traffic was in holding pattern as the full resources of the AI were devoted to the job of stabilizing Troy. Here goes nothing, Nathan said over the circuit. Initiate Delta-1. When they were at full power, you could see the gravity field from the tugs. They distorted starlight. Ninety-six tugs each with the same capacity as the original pause, started to strain against the massive levers. Flexion, Argus reported, reducing power. Damn it, Tyler said. That was what they were mainly worried about. Nickel iron was not as rigid as steel. The levers were tapered a hundred meters at the end where the tugs were attached and 600 at the base but it still wasn't sturdy enough for the full power. This is going to take some time, Nathan said, but it's working. We've already slowed rotation 3%. This will take about six hours, Argus said. The tugs will exhaust their onboard fuel supplies before the evolution is finished. I will schedule rotations for refueling. I've got calls to make, Tyler muttered. At some point, he had to find somebody to share things like this with. It was no fun by yourself. Maybe he should go on tour like Steve had done. Ah, the hell with it. He leaned back in the comfortable couch and watched the tugs work. Before long, he fell asleep. That was John Ringo's Live Free or Die, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude 
to Michael Merceau, and thanks to Josh Hayes for doing the interviewing this week. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.